0: The Colorado Behavioral Health and Wellness Summit brought clinicians, educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders in the field of behavioral health together at the University of Denver. The summit was a collaboration between the Mental Health Center of Denver, the University of Denver, and Envision EnvisionU, who were gracious enough to invite the Emergency Medical Minute to record the event and share it with you all. Here is Allison Miller, the Program Manager of Child and Family Outpatient Services at the Mental Health Center of Denver, with Leah Queen, a behavioral health therapist and outpatient clinician at the Mental Health Center of Denver, and John Roberts, a licensed mental health therapist at the Mental Health Center of Denver, with their presentation, Treating the Whole System, Integrating Cultural and Family System Models for Families and Youth Using Substances in a Community Behavioral Health Setting, Um,
1: My name is Allison Miller, I am um, a program manager over at the Mental Health Center of Denver. Um, I oversee our Child and Family Outpatient Program as well as uh, what we call our Summit Program. Summit is um, the word we wanted to use, so our acronym that we found was basically standing for um, Substance Use Multidisciplinary Model for Integrated Treatment. Um, I also oversee some of the implementation of EMDR as well. So, today we're going to talk about treating the whole system. Really thinking about ways that we can come at substance use when working with youth and families from a systems perspective, and also kind of go over some cultural assessment stuff. Um, and specifically, how we're applying this in a community behavioral health setting. Um, and so as we're kind of going through everything please feel free to jump in with questions if you guys want clarification Um, we'll have some time towards the end to kind of dive into more of the concepts too if you guys want to do any of that um, in terms of questions but we're gonna kind of go over um, cultural assessments and some of the stuff that we kind of use when we're talking about substance use really seeing substance use when you're kind of when a family is impacted by substance use whether it's the parents using or the youth how are we seeing that from a cultural lens as well as some of the family systems interventions that we like to use for families when they're somehow impacted by the substance use. Um, And then how we're integrating treatment in a mental health organization Um, because it's been a huge culture shift within our organization as well, and I think in the mental health field in general to have that integrated treatment. So um, I'll talk a little bit more about our programs towards the end, but I'm gonna
2: toss it over to Leah. Thank you, Allison. Um, Just some housekeeping things. Does everybody know where the restroom is, if you need to use it? Okay, I know that's important for me whenever I'm in a treatment. So as Allison said, my name is Leah Queen. Um, I'm a therapist with the Emerson Street Program at the Mental Health Center of Denver. Um, My area of specialty is working with teens and young adults at the Emerson Street Program, specifically um, teenagers age 15 to young adults up to age 26. Um, that's not the only population that I've worked with in my career. That's the focus as of right now. Um, I am a licensed marriage and family therapist and a licensed addiction counselor, and I've been providing uh, counseling in the field since 2007 in a variety of different settings. Um, what we're going to talk about a little bit today with culture um, is we going to be talking about teenagers but we're also going to be talking about um, you know more families uh, that we see in community mental health um, parents you know the supports that we offer with them as well I might have more to speak about from a teenager and young adult lens since that's the program that I work with right now um, let's see so when I tell other clinicians um, that I work with teenagers, and not only that I work with teenagers, but that I love working with teenagers. I usually get puzzled. Yeah, puzzled look um, in response, um, and I don't think it's only because, you know, I sometimes look like a teenager, um, but I think it's also because, in part, um, teenagers have the reputation of being moody and overdramatic. Um, I can relate to that because I have a similar reputation as well, um, but either way, I think it's um, helpful for building rapport Um, so in my work um, you know talking about yourself coming to see a counselor maybe for the first time um, and talking about your problems can be challenging for many different reasons especially when it comes to talking about your culture because culture is a really personal and private part of your life um, and you want to make sure that that's received with sensitivity and validation Um, and sometimes as clinicians we might not always know how to start the conversation how to keep the conversation going um, even throughout the different phases of uh, treatment beyond just the initial building rapport and intake part of the um, therapy Um, next I want to do is um, share a story about perception referencing the slide that you see right up here Um, perception and misunderstanding okay the story I'm gonna um, discuss has no identifying information um, as to protect the confidentiality of the other person involved in the story okay Um, so I was sitting with a newly referred individual at work building rapport gathering information on their presenting concerns and the subject of substance use was brought up naturally And every answer this person was giving me in response to um, substance use was no, no, no. And so just as I thought I had a good grasp on my clinical conceptualization, the individual mentioned how they were using marijuana with a friend just last week. Now in my mind, I thought, well now wait a minute. Um, You just denied any drug use when I was asking you before. And I thought this person was being dishonest with me. Um, But instead of just going to believing the assumption that I was thinking about in my head, I got curious and I asked this person, do you consider marijuana to be a drug? And this young person looked very surprised at this question and answered, no, it's legal, isn't it? It was at that moment that I realized that the misunderstanding that we had was a cultural one based on their perception. What we're going to talk about next is a bit about the DSM-5, um, the cultural formulation interview, uh, which has been really, really helpful in my clinical work with some example questions to be able to start the conversation about culture and continue the conversation about culture. I assume everybody in here is familiar with that, maybe by a raise of hands, nodding the heads. Yes. Great. Wonderful. So we're going to talk about that a little bit um, just because, Talking about culture and talking about substance use can be tricky, as we said before, and unless um, you have experience with taking CAT classes, Colorado Addiction Counselor classes, or have a master's degree in the counseling field, um, you might find yourself at a disadvantage or a loss at what to say or what to ask. Um, I've heard other clinicians say, what do I ask when it comes to culture? What is important? Where do I even start? Um, So... This is a really good place to start in my experience. Um, For those of you that do have a DSM-5, you can reference this in pages uh, 752 and 754. So one of the questions that they ask in the beginning is starts with a prompt and then with a question. So people often understand their problems in their own way, which may be similar to or different from how doctors describe the problem. How would you describe your problem? And then a follow-up question is that some people may explain their problems as a result of bad things that happen in their life. Problems with others, a physical illness, spiritual reason, or other causes. What do you think are the causes of your problem? Now, this only gets us started in the interview. There's other sections that this explores as well, including your stressors and your supports. Um, I don't have a slide for that, but... Um, What's stressful to you? What do you consider stressful? What does your support system look like? Who do you trust? When you're having a hard time, who do you talk to? Do you talk to anybody? It also asks us to explore the role of cultural identity. How do you see yourself? How do you see yourself in relationship to your family, to other people your age, to your problem even? self-coping how have you already been trying to manage or solve the problems that have brought you here today what's been working what's not been working where do i come in past help seeking who have you gone to before coming to me to try and get help who has been helpful who's been unhelpful if you want to share that story barriers to treatment any case management needs transportation childcare scheduling um, school scheduling right? availability all of that and then the last part talks about your preferences um, I think all of these areas are important in their own way preferences I think is one of my favorite areas to explore when it comes to culture and I I don't know how often that is brought up in the therapeutic relationship. I would say that it probably varies from person to person. Um, But if you take any advice from me today, I would encourage exploring preferences. um, Only because there's parts of culture that some people are comfortable with talking about and other parts that we find ourselves struggling to talk about it or bring it up. And preferences um, can be... Do you prefer a male or a female therapist? Do you prefer a therapist who's a person of color? Do you prefer a therapist that speaks a particular language, right? Those sort of preferences are really, really important too in my opinion. Um, And then have you had concerns about um, past experiences with a therapist where you may or may not have felt comfortable to bring up your preferences when it comes to your treatment. Um, Again, going back to something I was saying before, if we don't talk about culture, if we don't address culture, I have a hard time understanding how we can even understand it and then potentially address it, not only at the start of treatment but throughout treatment as well. Because cultural um, points are going to continue to come up from start to the end. All right, so in this slide, talk a little bit more about the DSM-5 again, cultural concepts of distress. And in my experience working with teenagers and young adults, and I think this could possibly be true for anybody, I've noticed that once you get someone in the room by themselves, and encourage them to tell their story from their perspective most people will brighten up and they're pretty eager to talk about their story from their perspective um, I remember as an adolescent myself um, I got into trouble with my mom and she sent me to talk to my grandmother who I was really close with um, to explain my side of the story and as I was explaining you know myself my grandmother the loving woman that she was. Um, She was very warm in her approach with me, which I really appreciated. Um, So as I was explaining myself and talking about what I did to try and avoid what got me into trouble, (laughs) how I tried dealing with the aftermath when my mother found out, um, how I tried bringing my dad into the argument, um, to the here and the now, talking with my grandmother and asking for help, My grandmother very wisely, I think, responded with, I can see where you're coming from. That makes sense. Are you ready to fix this? But her giving me that space to give um, my perspective to that interaction was really important to me. And it really helped me to feel comfortable to ask her for help because I don't think that if she had responded, she hadn't responded that way, I wouldn't have felt comfortable to continue to have the conversation and ask for her help. And I think anybody coming to mental health treatment is gonna have a similar experience. Um, So that's why asking um, those initial questions warmly, wisely, and validatingly, um, that's even a conjugation. I may have just made it up. Um, is really important too when we're talking about culture as well. Um, I believe that everybody has a story and that every story is worth telling and I really admire Brené Brown. Anybody in here? um, Yes, great. If not, I recommend checking her out. She said something I thought was very wise um, in one of her TED talks. She said maybe stories are just data with a soul and I thought that was really enlightening for me because I think the same about culture. That's really important clinical information with a soul. Okay. So, in talking a bit more about these three concepts and the cultural concepts of distress, um, there are two um, cultural syndromes that I'm going to reference. There's many more listed in the DSM-5 if you haven't had a chance to check that out. Um, but just for the purpose of this presentation, I'm going to reference two cultural syndromes. And in preparation for this, I tried really hard at learning the pronunciation. So I ask for your forgiveness in advance if I'm messing this up in my own anxiety today. Um, but the kafung shishaja, um, which translates to thinking too much in the shona. Uh, Shona of Zimbabwe. Anybody read about that or heard about that? Really interesting information. Um, I give page numbers as well so for your reference DSM-5, pages 833 to 837 is where you can read about all the clinical syndromes that are listed in there. That is one of them. The second one is the Maladi Mound which is translated to literally caused illness or sent sickness in Haitian communities where interpersonal envy and malice cause people to harm their enemies by sending illnesses such as psychosis, depression, social or academic failure. The assumption is that these illnesses may be caused by another's envy or hatred, and hatred perhaps, provoked by the victim's economic success such as obtaining a new job or Um, expensive purchase of some kind Um, cultural idioms of distress refer to the ways that cultures express distress that may not involve specific symptoms or syndromes but provide a collective and shared way of experiencing and talking about personal or social concerns so this is where we get information on the way people talk about these problems, or how these symptoms might show outwardly, either to other people or to the person themselves. In okay. um, I'm so sorry. It is indicative of interpersonal and social difficulties. So, for example, marital problems, having no money to take care of your children. With cultural explanations, um, is sometimes explained as, my heart is painful because I think too much. As an explanation, it is considered to be caused by anxiety, depression, and somatic problems. My heart is painful because I think too much. What a lovely way of explaining that, I think. Um, with Malady Mountain, the humanly caused illness, or the scent sickness that I was referring to before, one person's gain is assumed to produce another person's loss. So visible success makes one vulnerable to attack. Um, someone who might be attractive, intelligent, wealthy, or is perceived um, young children as well, perceived successful in some way is vulnerable to this illness in this culture. Okay. Now here's the part of my presentation where I might lose some of you to boredom with statistics, so I apologize in advance. So this is a um, clip that I got from the SAMHSA website. Um, unfortunately it does not include um, stats for non-binary or transgender individuals. Um, So keep that in mind when reviewing this data and it is from 2016 so there could be more updated data That's not included in this too. Um, I Thought this is just really interesting information to keep in mind for 2016 and it only addresses alcohol use so it's excluding other drug use so keep that in mind as well is that What's known at the time in the US is there's 88,000 alcohol related deaths per year that we know of. What is a standard drink? Stats on underage drinking, so the demographic between ages 12 to 20. To 20 19.3 reported alcohol use, which in my mind I think that's pretty low considering the population that I work with, but that's reported. 12.1 reported binge drinking, 2.8, heavy drinking. And on the right, it breaks down the difference between binge drinking and heavy drinking, which we'll get to in just a minute. The cost of excessive alcohol use in the US in 2010, workplace productivity, um, 179 billion. Medical expenses, 28 billion. Criminal justice system, 25 billion. Motor vehicle collusion, 13 billion for the year. And then alcohol use, ages 21 or older, 55.8% alcohol use in some capacity, 6.2% binge drinking, 6.6% heavy drinking. And then breaking it down with cis women and men, binge drinking is considered having four or more drinks in one occasion, which is two to three hours. That's one occasion. Heavy drinking is having eight or more drinks per week, based on the standard drink that we've got here. And then for men, binge drinking is having five or more drinks in one occasion. Heavy drinking, having 15 or more drinks per week. I thought it was really interesting. And everybody, I'm making eye contact with you, so I haven't lost anybody to sleep, so that's great. Um, Some additional stats worldwide. These are included in the DSM as well. Is that 3.8% of all global deaths and 46 of global disability adjusted life years are attributable to alcohol. This is from 2013, <coughs> so again this information might be outdated. In the U.S., 80% of adults, 18 plus, have consumed alcohol at some point. 65% are current drinkers in that year. of the world population, ages 15 to 64, has a current alcohol use disorder. 1.1% in the African region has an alcohol use disorder in 2013. 5.2% of the American region, which includes North America, Central America, South America, and the Caribbean, has an alcohol use disorder. And 10.9% in Eastern Europe had an alcohol use disorder in 2013. Um, There is additional information on alcohol use specifically at the World Health Organization's website. Um, Their information is from 2016, based on what I read. Um, So for further reading, you're encouraged to go to their website. I thought it was really, really helpful, Um, but it doesn't include other substance use, just That's it for my part. I really appreciate you listening today, and so I'm going to hand it off to my colleague, John Roberts, to talk more about
0: family systems. Thank you. All right, thank you guys for being here. I know you had some exciting choices today, so I appreciate you coming to ours. Um, I'm going to talk about family systems and um, how that might be used in community mental health settings specifically around substance use, um, for me, I, uh, my position is to be working with youth from 5 to 17, and so all of my cases have a, a child attached in some way, um, and so I encounter substance use uh, among teens and then in the parents and things like that, and so um, having some good ideas about using systems work is going to be really helpful. Um, how many of you do some kind of systems work, family therapy kind of stuff? Uh, already. Awesome. Um, And I I do think that uh, family systems is kind of underrepresented in the clinical world. Um, Like all the different disciplines address family systems in some way, um, but it's really like out in the field where you get the the most experience and training with it. Um, And so to kind of introduce some of these ideas, um, thinking about separating parental use from youth use and the impact on the family. Um, so if you have a parent who's using, um, that's going to be really interfering with the attachment there. Um, it's going to limit the available parenting skills that they have. Um, they're going to be preoccupied with um, using or recovering from use. And when it comes to co-occurring disorders, um, on top of that, they're going to be dealing with whatever mental health condition is like wrapped up with the substance use. So if a person is depressed and drinking, then they're spending a lot of time like managing all that. Meanwhile, their child doesn't have, a, you know, a secure attachment figure to turn to, and um, you're gonna see them, you know, blown out of classrooms or something, and they're gonna wind up in our offices, um, usually, you know, labeled as like the identified person in the family. Um, <clears throat> so uh, with youth use, it's important to remember that, you know, um, experimenting with substances is pretty common for teenagers, but when you've been through um, the adversities that a lot of our community mental health families go through, um, it has a different uh, meaning to it. You know, there's a lot of comfort and relief that use brings to you when, you're, um, when you grow up in a, in a disadvantaged system like that. Um, so for youth, um, it can be kind of hard to manage substances because they haven't had the time yet to experience a lot of the more severe symptoms. Uh, they don't have, like, the body problems or the legal problems sometimes, um, although that certainly does come up. Uh, but just, they're not hurt by it yet, whereas the older crowd do. They do have the liver problems and other health conditions. Um, and then it can be a little easier to help youth because they're not so entrenched in it, and they're so malleable and um, just fresh. They're young kids, you know, like, so uh, they're, they can let go of stuff more easily. Um, I'm going to talk about three main... Uh, ideas and family systems here. We're going to start with genograms, I'm going to talk about triangles, and then end up with attachment interventions. So hopefully I'm going to start big with the genogram, go to triangles, and then uh, attachment interventions. Um, So these are pretty important areas, pretty uh, standard family systems uh, concepts to be comfortable with. So, genograms are a very popular family therapy tool. Um, A lot of individual models will teach genograms, um, and it's a super helpful way for us to kind of map out what's going on in a family. Um, I do a genogram with every family that I see. I I don't necessarily do a a therapeutic genogram with them, because it is so cognitive, and a lot of the work that we need to do is more experiential, and so um, the cognitive stuff is, sometimes gets people, they're talking about a problem rather than like being in it and modifying a problem. Um, So this helps me not lose track. Um, Even if you're trained in an individual model, you're gonna be spending a lot of time listening to stories about people's relationships and the different cousins and siblings and family members and steps and half siblings and all this stuff and it can immediately overwhelm you if you don't have it mapped out. so you can find the standard genogram symbols online. You can just Google genogram symbols. it will show you a bunch of different ones. Um, squares for male, circles for female. Um, and with uh, substance use and health conditions, they have these shaded um, styles here. I like to remember it like the, the shade across the bottom. It's like a glass of alcohol or something. And then, if you shade vertically, it's uh, mental health or physical health condition. I like to remember that, like bipolar or something like that, where the mental health is more side to side, and the substance use is up at, or uh, horizontal. Um, <clears throat> so, when you're writing, making your genogram, a helpful tip is write the age in the upper left corner so you have room for these shading. Uh, the darker you shade it, the more severe it is. Um, and then. Like when you're starting out using genograms, um, they can get really like sprawling and cumbersome sometimes, um, and you have like the lines get squiggly because you didn't leave enough room, and that's all fine. And the more comfortable you get with it, the more you can like map it out a little bit in conversation about, oh, this guy's got six siblings, so I better draw a long line here, mm-hmm. um, and four dads, so I better draw like a tall line here, so I can get all the dad lines in. Uh, <clears throat> And one way to really help simplify it is starting with the identified person and then uh, webbing it out from there and making sure the symbols for the, the most pertinent people are larger. Um, so when you're, when you're physically making the genogram, um, it can help to just use your intuition on who the most important people are and like the cousins and you know, steps on my dad's side who comes over every other weekend, you draw those like smaller and they kind of higher up um, and so it kind of really pops, like, the, the big part of a person's life and who their important um, relational figures are. So uh, this is one way to where you can start to see the generational patterns of substance use and mental health. So even if you don't find addiction per se in the other generations, you're often going to find addictive-like behaviors um, that are similar to the person who are using. So. It could be process addiction stuff, like gambling or shopping or something like that. It's surprising how many people go to casinos, um, but if we're not asking that question, we might not discover that. Um, So, when we get this mapped out, then it sets us up nicely to help them discover it and to see how, wow, my relationship with my boyfriend here in ninth grade is uh, way similar to my mom's relationship they both just got uh, tickets for assault and like here we go and you start to make these connections that you're kind of following a path uh, of people before you Then it helps you break the curse because these generational patterns get handed down over and over again you're going to see over and over from the grandparents to the parents to the kids these same kind of uh, things. You can find triangles in here feedback loops, all the kind of things that Uh, you look for in family systems work. So, when we're talking about triangles, um, there's like four triangles. We're only gonna talk about two of them. Um, The first one I wanna reference is what I call the caught in the middle triangle. So if you imagine uh, like a child with divorcing parents, a six-year-old kid and his parents are splitting up, there's gonna be tremendous pressure on that child to like pick a side. Even if the parents are trying to avoid that, and they're not talking crap about each other, um, that child's still gonna feel pulled in both directions. This is an unstable triangle. Doesn't mean good or bad, it just means that it's uh, not likely to stay this uh, uh, permutation for very long. It's gonna switch to a different type of triangle. Um, So, when you feel pulled in the middle, caught in the middle like this, um, the tendency is to move towards whatever feels more comfortable. So this child with their divorcing parents, they're going to want to pick the house that they feel more comfortable in. Whatever that means, if there's less rules or more connection or something like that, that's just naturally going to happen. So they're going to not stay stuck in the middle, and they're going to pick a side. Now fast forward 10 years and this 6-year-old is 16. He's living with mom mostly and um, starting to get a taste for drugs or alcohol. We swap out in the corner of one of the parents with drugs or alcohol and maybe he's gotten in trouble or something or suspended or whatever and it hits the radar for mom and she has to deal with this problem of substance use. Um, the, what I see a lot is this parent is going to disparage the substance and they're going to talk a lot of crap about that just like they would the divorced partner 10 years earlier and they're gonna say, like, you're poisoning yourself, you're throwing away your potential, like, don't you see you're gonna get in trouble, like, you've got your whole life ahead of you, and, you, and they start talking so much uh, crap about the substance that now this kid is caught in the middle between his substance and his family member. And which one are we gonna choose? We're gonna choose the one that's more comfortable. And so it end up driving your family member away and they're going to fuse up and align more with that substance because that's comfortable. There's no judgment there. It's instant relief. Um, You can change your feeling. Uh, Whatever the thing is that you're disowned, that insecurity, whatever the uh, trauma is that you're carrying, you can just drown that in alcohol or whatever substance. Um, Nobody's nagging at you. And so this is going to lead to the uh, common enemy triangle. Where they're overly fused with that substance. So to to balance this, what we want to do as therapists is to try to um, steer them into the different triangle. This is where uh, this is extremely hard to do when you see your loved one um, falling down an addiction hole. Uh, but it's important to try to help that family member to remain maintain some kind of like neutral position around the, the substance. And I don't mean like um, enabling or anything or. Uh, looking the other way, but to just not talk so much shit about it so that they can uh, focus on bonding with that family member. And so what it would do is re-establish that caught in the middle triangle, but in this case um, the comfort is much stronger on the family member side. And so you can um, start to join with your substance using family member against the addiction. And now the drug or alcohol is the condom and enemy, and you guys are in this together. Um, so using these uh, triangle ideas can be a helpful way to organize your interventions, um, like thinking in threes is a really good way of getting started with family systems work. Um, and remembering how this is a stable triangle. When, uh, when I feel tight and bonded with something, someone and there's this third thing that we're both against, like we can stick with that forever. Um, I'm not caught in the middle. I got my buddy, and um, that thing is an enemy, and we got to work with it. Um, some models that do this a lot are like, like narrative models where you like externalize a problem, and so you take it out of like the person's personality and put it more like, um, uh, in the world, like give a name or something like that. Uh, Internal Family Systems does this a lot. Um, so, keeping these uh, triangle ideas in mind. Um, so, uh, any questions on triangles so far, or genograms that you guys are uh, tossing around? Okay.
1: With the triangles, the genogram I get in the sense that you are kind of building out and you are getting. And when you're putting something like this, is it like longitudinally? Is this like a forever model, is this a six-month model? You know, how does this really play out in reality?
0: Do you mean like in the, like as a clinical intervention or as like in the narrative of a person's life?
2: I'm thinking more in terms of a clinical
1: intervention. So if you're kind of focusing on a triangle type model, like you essentially said, um, you know, that you get to a point where the family
2: members are bonded against the drugs and like that's forever. But just, I mean, that was essentially what Mm I wanted to say.
1: what does that look like in a therapeutic
0: setting? Is this, mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, so um, you know, you can have more than one person in the room ideally. Um, a lot of my work is dyads with a parent and a and a child or teen. Um, and so like you, if you have this, if this is your map and you're thinking um, the uh, parent is too much against this drug and they're losing their family member, my interventions are going to be around, trying to warm up that relationship between the two of them. I'm gonna put less energy on the substance. I might say like, like, yeah, this is bad, but let's focus on you two right now, because that's, this is how you guys are gonna get through this. And um, you know, some of the models are, uh, like a structural model would be if the, um, the family members are too disengaged, like this teen is in their room all the time, then my interventions are gonna be around trying to get them out of the room and doing joint activities and stuff like that. And who knows how long that takes. Um, sometimes these patterns are pretty entrenched and it takes a long time, um, especially if the parent is dealing with their own mental health or substance use too. Um, so if you feel like this is going on, you gotta kinda uh, use your own, um, what, what the models that are congruent with your style to try to uh, target that. Um, uh, you know, the more you can access, the more you can modify. So if you can get, raise awareness that this is the dynamic that's happening, mom or dad, when, when you um, talk about their friends that way, or um, uh, complain or nag about the substance so much, it's a wedge, your person's getting further away from you, not closer, and you help raise that awareness, this is where that experiential piece comes in so much. So you might like, be able to elicit that kind of statement from the, the youth, for example. It's like, I feel like you're nagging, or you, you try to um, get them to say it in a, with some vulnerability. In a second, when we talk about attachment methods, that's a big part of it. Um, so uh, getting them to say this, uh, like, I feel more bonded to you when x, y, or z. Or like, I know I tell you to leave me alone, but I do like it when you kind of stick with it, and you ask me like a few more times. Um, and the parent to say, it helps me when you when I ask you what's wrong and you you say something. It helps me. Right? I miss you when you're quiet. Um, and you try to get those kind of um, statements put together. Um, it can really help. Does that answer your question? Exactly.
1: Yeah. Just kind of what does it
0: look like to to do that? Once they're jamming on this, like uh, we can kind of get out of the way, and they're going to figure out. Like, like, culturally, for example, um, we're going to figure out some ways to get through it uh, that we might not expect. So, like, if they have a, a spiritual like view of the problem or something, and they end up getting linked in more with uh, spiritual community, um, that can be like something that we might not think about if we're not, uh, you know, aligned that way. Um, so, uh, you know, really trusting the process that people. When when our arm gets cut, our body knows how to heal that. And when our relationships are hurt, there's a healing factor in us that knows how to like redo that. And so our job is to sort of jumpstart that process and get out of the way and kind of let it happen. A lot of family systems work is, you know, like stirring the pot and then letting go and letting what they're doing come alive in the room. Um, okay. All right, so... The last part of what I'm going to talk about is addiction as an attachment disorder. So this hopefully kind of just shows you the flow of what happens, um, how uh, addiction emerges in this way. Um, There's a really great TED talk by Johan Hari about um, uh, addiction as a bonding problem, Um, and a lot of the family system stuff is uh, going this way. So we start out with some sort of adverse background. We end up with these insecure attachment styles, and we have this maladaptive bonding thing. We become teenagers, and we start experimenting, and we end up with um, maybe trauma and some substance use going on. And so when you're focusing on the attachment issue, you're mostly doing this in dyads. There's a lot of different models out there. There is emotionally focused therapy, attachment-based family therapy, parent-child interaction therapy for the little ones, therapy, and they all pretty much address the same type of stuff. Uh, the goal ultimately is to restructure the bond between the substance user, the, the identified patient, and their attachment figure. For substance users, what they're doing is they're turning away from their flesh and blood relationships and towards the substance when they're in distress. Um, and so we're trying to help them learn to turn towards their partner and to trust that they're not gonna get Met with like criticism and things like that. We're helping the criticizer soften so that they can be more available to the person. Um, With uh, when it's adults, the attachment relationship is is reciprocal. There's hopefully less hierarchy. Um, I can express my insecurity to you, and you to me, and it's fair. Um, I want to be able to say, you know, I'm nervous about this thing, and have you. Like, respond to me in an emotionally engaged way um, so I can manage all that it doesn't stay like stuffed down and I have to like keep it down with substances or whatever with a parent-child relationship it's different um, there is hierarchy it's non reciprocal um, and so that can be a pretty bitter pill to swallow when you're a kid it sucks to have somebody else in charge and so you got to learn to like trust that your caregiver has your best intentions at heart when they're setting these limits around that you don't like. Um, And that's hard to do. And for an adult, it's hard to accept that you gotta do more. You gotta pay the bills, you gotta do more chores, you gotta be the first one to calm down. Um, You gotta not take it personally when they're all pissed off and they're saying nasty things to you. Um, And so the attachment methods are helping people get more comfortable with that, with the parent-child to um, accept the hierarchy and accept the lack of reciprocity um, to uh, respond, we want to teach caregivers to respond to attachment distress with caregiving. A lot of times if you're using, you're going to be preoccupied, you're turning away, you got to get uh, the parents to respond in an attuned and engaged way, and that's what a lot of attachment methods are doing. Um, and the last thought I think I'll end on is when When this attachment bond does get restructured and it gets really tight, it can free us up a lot. There is, um, like, trauma therapy is still helpful uh, when you have this restructured bond, but it's, like, less urgent. You know, when, um, if this kid's been through something and um, they're tempted to use or whatever and they've got a solid bond with their caregiver, um, they can say that and they can say, I keep remembering XYZ when you guys got divorced and somebody said, I wish we never had kids. We can share that in a natural, like, congruent, just family-based setting, and we don't have to necessarily get in there and do it. It's still helpful, um, but it uh, definitely mitigates the effect of trauma. Um, that's all I have. Any questions um, on my piece of it before I turn it over to Allison? Okay. Well, thank you very much.
1: Thanks. so um, as I said earlier, my name is Allison Miller. Um, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, a licensed addiction counselor, and what I kind of wanted to talk about is more of how we're applying some of this stuff in a community mental health setting. Um, specifically, we work with Medicaid populations through the Mental Health Center of Denver. And thinking about culture, right, and all of the stuff that people come with, their perceptions, their identities, and then thinking about the systems and the culture of systems, too. Um, Historically, when it comes to treatment models, substance use and mental health have been very separate for a long time. And it's only been probably within the last 10 years that we're really understanding how neurobiology and neuropsychology interact with mental health and really how they're starting to be more interconnected and how it's even more important. And we've had adult recovery services that obviously know this, you know, working with a 50-year-old who's got really serious addictions, who've been using since they were 12, right? They're struggling with mental health, they're struggling with just <coughs> basic needs and basic functioning. So when we're looking at child mental health, working with youth and families, what we're what we're looking at is not just looking at a youth who's starting to experiment, but if we're seeing a youth in our setting, they're already somewhat at risk, right? And so those youth who might be using, it's actually even more important that we're talking about early intervention and prevention models, um, especially around substance use. And so how I kind of wanted to approach this is these are kind of the pieces that have helped us develop our co-occurring treatment program. It's been very clinician-driven and very clinician-advocated within our organization. Um, We really try to integrate models, utilize some of our structures, and it is still a work in progress, for sure. And how I want to share this is kind of through my own story of being a clinician. So I started out, when I graduated with my bachelor's, I started out doing juvenile probation. Technically pre-trial release, these were kids' first time in trouble with the law, primarily in Arapahoe and Douglas County, so I came across a lot of stuff. I was doing the drug tests, I was really talking to the youth and families about what kind of treatment did they need to keep themselves out of the criminal justice system, and about Four years into this job, I ran across a youth. 17 years old, I was working with him. He was old, he turned 18 while I was working with him. I'm trying to supervise him. He had done, uh, he had been gang involved previously as a pretty young youth, had also gotten involved in substance use. Um, I was pretty naive too at that time. I was what, like 25 and working with this youth. He had gone to DYC. During his Department of Youth Corrections time, which is where you're committed to the state for zero to two years, he had been diagnosed with uh, throat cancer. So DYC was like, no, we can't handle this. We're going to release him, send him home. He got got treatment and went into remission. I ran across him because he picked up a new charge. So he didn't have any involvement at that point, so he came to us. And through his supervision, I worked with him, he was able to get his GED, he had a full-time job, he was being very successful, but the one thing that kept coming up was his drug test came up positive for POTS over and over again. Sometimes he would quit for a while, the numbers would go down, but it would always pop right back up. And I was kind of done with that system because at one point when he got sentenced, they put him back in the UIC. And I was like, no, that's it, I'm done. He was a kid who had experienced a lot of trauma. I saw that, I was like, I need to address that underlying trauma. And so I went back to school, became a therapist. And through that process, I focused specifically on trauma and how to address things like substance, how to address things like child abuse and neglect and really try to prevent even people going into substances. Fast forward a few years, I've done time in residential, did home-based therapy. I ended up in MHC, outpatient therapist. And through that, I was able to dive into all of that trauma work, and I loved it. I really liked being able to work with people through their long process, um, especially youth, and I just absolutely adored it. However, um, one of my coworkers started the champion of substance use treatment. There were eight of us on the team of outpatient clinicians and she was our only adult therapist that had dual licensure. She also came from um, the DUI model, like she used to do DUI groups and stuff like that. So she very much knew about substance use treatment. And so she would come to me and say, hey, I think you should get your addiction counseling license. I was like, no way. No way, I'm not gonna touch it. I'm here for mental health. And that's a culture within the mental health system that is still really present and is a really huge barrier to get through. And it took an assistant program manager and a grant to get me trained in my addiction counseling license. So they came to me and said, okay, well, so we really want you to get your addiction counseling license and we're gonna pay for it. And I was like, awesome, that is great. That's another little couple of letters behind my name that I can use on my resume, right? That'll get me work in the future. And I started to take the classes, and oh man, pharmacology grabbed me. I'm kind of a nerd for science. The neurobiology, the neuropsychology really liked that. I had already learned about attachment and trauma, and I got the neurobiology around that. But then you add substances to it, and it blew my mind away. Um, And I became a strong advocate for this co-occurring treatment. So I started to engage in the organizational stuff that was happening that this other clinician had kind of started. So, you know, through our organization, we have, like I said, we have adult recovery services, and they are very well versed in this stuff. They've been doing it for a long time. So, our child and family department started to collaborate with them around how can we create a culture shift within our organization. We're talking about an organization of 800 people, 800 employees, pretty significant amounts of culture shift, right? especially within child and family, which is also why I say work in progress, because it is still a work in progress. And so started going to these meetings after, let's see, so probably three years. I had gotten my licensure, I had done all the training, and I had been going to these meetings for about three years. And we rolled out a five-minute online training around how we want to address substance use, and specifically someone who might show up at our door under the influence. Instead of sending them away, saying, you're intoxicated, get out of here, right? How can we engage and actually keep them engaged in treatment? A five-minute training video after two and a half, three years, right? It was a success. We were really excited, but then every single person in the organization got that five-minute training. So whether you were an IT specialist, whether you were a direct care person, whether you worked in our development department, you get this five-minute training. Um, Another year later, We got a two hour training for our direct care staff around just our treatment model. John um, referenced Johan Hari's TED Talk. The TED Talk specifically is called Everything You Think You Know About Addiction Is Wrong. And he really talks about how it's a bonding disorder. Like you are not bonded and the only thing that you're gonna bond to is substances when you don't have those good relationships in your life. So we started showing this video to every one of our direct care staff. It's been going on for about two years now. And it's starting to make a culture shift. But one of the things that was still really present, Lee and I have been doing this co-occurring co-occurring treatment. I'm going to put that in quotes because like, it was a group of four of us who met once a month, every other month, and just did consultation with one another. We were always there to support our colleagues, willing to offer trainings, um, but no one ever used us, right? It was just never there. And so we, over time, as an organization, specifically our outpatient program, the previous program manager, really actually started to recruit people from our adult recovery services who they kind of already got this CAC training really, really quickly because they were in that stuff. So I think now On our team, that when I started seven years ago to now, we've gone from eight clinicians to 17 over two sites. So pretty big growth in our outpatient program, and I would say at least six of them came from the adult recovery side, and they all have uh, co-occurring dual licensure. And so we've been able to grow capacity for addressing this co-occurring substance use. The other thing our organization started to do, I think before I started, was give people a differential for that training. Like, you got a little bit of extra money if you had a LAC or a CAC. Um, That was really important for retention, for getting people interested in doing this, right? And so it then took, let's see, so five years through. We, just last year, got it on our strategic plan through our board and our executive managers that child and family was going to have a co-occurring treatment program. And you know, the... The factor that really pushed it to that point was that Arapahoe House closed. Who knows what Arapahoe House is? see a lot of head nods, right? Um, Arapahoe House closed, and that meant that there were no more adolescent treatment programs readily available in the Denver community that easily took Medicaid clients that worked with those co-occurring disorders. So the company saw it as a business model, right? Like this is a way that we can keep making money and we can expand our services and get referrals from other sources. So after all of those years, of every time someone would say from a clinician's point of view, what do you think the community needs? Every single time I said substance use treatment. I need substance use treatment. We need something. We need a champion at that level. Um, And so it took a very long time to put this in place. And so one of the things that I really want to kind of in part, is this idea of culture, around substance use, how our own individual biases, our own individual experiences, with either ourselves or family members, is so important. Those perceptions, those cultural norms. It is so very important on an individual level, whether we're doing the treatment or receiving the treatment, to really start talking about it. Um, And I think especially for kids and families. Um, It's also really common in our Outpatient program that we see youth removed from the home or being raised by grandparents because of their parents' substance use, right? So we're also looking at all of those attachment things, and we might not even have the substance-using parents to be able to work directly with. But doing this work, this all of the family systems work, is even that much more important. And so the last piece, you know, one thing I will say um, is around this utilizing of structures. One of the nice things about finally putting it in our strategic plan and actually making it a priority from the top down is that we got IT involved, and so now we have stuff that's going through our medical record system. We got development involved, so now we can create brochures and we can advertise and we can get that support. Right? Um, I mean, that's why I'm even here to begin with. If someone said, hey, you're running this program now, do you guys want to do a presentation? Right? Never would have had this opportunity had it not been there. And so, to really have champions on the top as well as the bottom to kind of support this model, I think is really important. Out of curiosity, does anyone here work in community mental health?
2: Yeah. You're a lone ranger. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm a supervisor of All Health Network, and we're doing the same thing agency-wide, mm-hmm. to do away with the siloing of mental
1: health. And- yeah, and it's a really huge culture shift. Yeah it's a huge culture shift and it has really taken our organization supporting people to be trained supporting so one of the biggest barriers for those that don't work in community mental health is that when you're working in community mental health with Medicaid you have expectations on you as a clinician for how much time you have to spend with clients and how fast your documentation has to get in and those two barriers plus our caseloads can be really cumbersome when you're asking a clinician to try to champion something like this. It's really difficult. And so I was really privileged to work for a team that prioritized child mental health in a different way. We keep our caseloads at 40 because we make people come in every week. We're not going to let you go a month without treatment because we want you to come in every single week. And we're only gonna treat you for this period of time. We try to limit how much time they're in treatment by doing those really fast, easy, like quick interventions that are more intense. Things like EMDR is something that we're trying to roll out because we know that it's effective for getting the treatment done faster, right? So because of our treatment model and our outpatient program, we were able to keep caseloads down. The other thing is that we had program managers and directors that really supported staff <coughs> maybe not hitting those numbers because they were doing other things. I will tell you, I've worked for Community Mental Health for seven years, I have never hit those numbers. I have never been perfect on my consumer service hours or my timely documentation. It has been a struggle, but I have been championing a lot of different things. I go to those things, I do trainings, because that diversifies what I do and it's a passion that I have. And I had a program manager who was supportive of it. And then, organizationally, we had structures set up so that we paid for people, to get their licensure if they made a commitment to our organization to work for a certain period of time. So after I got my license, I still had another year that I had to work there or pay all the money back that I that they had spent on me. And that was true, and that's true across the board uh, when you're getting that training through our organization is that we have those expectations in place. Um, and if it weren't for that, I never ever would have gotten my lack if it were not for my organization saying, I would pay for this. And so those structures, I think, are really important to try to get those champions around it to really integrate those models, um, to really support people in training. So our summit program, Maybe there we go. Um, so it's, it's summit. We liked the idea of the word summit, right? Like there's a lot of imageries that come up when you think about summiting so mountains. And so we really wanted to use that word So we came up with that it stands for Substance Use Multidisciplinary Model for Integrated Treatment. We're integrating treatment, we're using WACs, we're using LMFTs, we're using LCSWs, LPCs, psychologists, psychiatrists. We had to get our psychiatry on board. That was a big shift for them, too. And actually, just a small antidote. So I work and do this stuff all the time, and I actually had a youth who was doing some pretty high-risk substance use, and the psychiatrist just told me, I think we need to go to Denver STEP program. And I was like, no, we can do this here. And so it was a huge shift for people to really think that mental health organizations can do substance use treatments. Um, And so we have CAC and LAC staff. We have probably 14 now on our team. Emerson Street, every single one of them um, that Leah comes from are all duly licensed. So every youth that goes to that program 15 to 26 Is getting that specialization for our outpatient program we have about six or seven people out of a 17 person team that can do that we have a couple school-based clinicians and we're getting some more people trained right so we're constantly having these conversations about who can we get services like who can we get trained in these specializations um we are also with the help of our it department and our medical record department we were able to implement screening across the board. So anyone, ages nine to 26, right, to your guys' program, nine through 26, it's the CRAFT. So the CRAFT is a tool that I gave you guys. It's through, it's a free public health model. It's through the SBIRT model. Um, SBIRT stands for Screening, Brief Interventions, and Early Treatment. It was designed by NAMI? can't remember, one of the national organizations, I think it's, I can't remember, NIDA NIDA maybe? One of the, the, one of the big national organizations. Um, but they put out a public health model about 10 years ago to train doctors, to train medical staff, nurses, anyone in the healthcare field who might run across a youth using substances to try to screen for potential substance use disorders. So the screen you guys got is the screen that's been put out there. Um, it's been updated. It is validated research-wise for 11 to 18 years old. We use it in a broader age range. Um, there, and it's all free information. The Espert model, the CRAFT, this is all free public information that anyone can learn about, anyone can access, and anyone can train on. All of the information is completely free. And so the CRAFT allows us to screen for potentials. The thing that our medical record department decided to help us with, Because we were like, okay, program managers and clinicians, make sure that this craft is done for everyone 9 to 26 years old for our child and family departments. And it's up to managers to make sure their staff are doing it. And then the IT department said, okay, so we're going to put it in the medical record, and then we're going to do this fun little programming where every time someone is at risk or scores high enough, we're going to shoot an email to your team and let you know that this youth is potentially at risk. So we get that email and then we make contact with that clinician. We do the outreach, we do the support. Um, IT does a lot of the support for us. It's normally through email. And this was also after we went around to every single one of our teams and did training on who who our treatment team is, what we do, what we offer, all of that stuff. So we really had to do this to even start the conversation with folks because time and time again, I have talked to clinicians who don't want to address substance use with youth and families. They don't want to, for whether it's personal reasons or their own biases, or it's just something that they don't think they have training in. They don't want to talk about it. They work in child mental health for a reason. So that was a huge piece. Um, And then the integrative treatment approaches. um, We have very well-trained staff. Um, you You guys have heard from two of them. You know, we have a variety of training, a background, and I think that's been really helpful to be able to be very eclectic in our approaches depending on what the presentation is. And so, this is what we do. Our team gets notified, and these are all of the things that we can offer to someone. So when we reach out, we say, what do you need? As a clinician who doesn't do this, what do you need? And so, really, it starts with consultation, collaboration, and training. We have a huge list of requests for training. People want to know about vaping. People want to know about marijuana. They want to know how to have a conversation with someone who's under the influence in their office. right? Those are the things that everyone runs across that most people don't feel very comfortable being able to address. We also can do adjunct services. So let's say you've been working with someone for a number, like let's say a year, and, they, and the youth starts using substances, and you just want them to come in, maybe do a, Psychoeducate about pharmacology and what it's doing. Maybe they want someone to start family therapy, right? So we can do those adjuncts. We can also take over the entire case if we need to, as well as being able to assess for some of that higher level of care and then help out with those referral sources. And so that's what our team does. It has taken, so I've been at MHC for almost seven years. We rolled all of this out June 1st, Of this year so it took a long time to really get this up and running and to get all of these pieces of our organization really on board for this and so that's one of the things that's probably one of the biggest barriers to putting co-occurring treatment for youth into mental health systems and at this point we're not even six months in and we have had I think about 50 youth identified as being at risk and that's also with clinicians not consistently doing the craft because our IT systems are still kind of lacking in that they don't get like reminders automatically and it's really up to managers to make sure that they're um, reviewing documentation enough that they're catching that piece. So not only do I have to have managers being on top of it, I have to have clinicians on top of it too, right? They have to both be on board. And so that's been a huge piece. Um, So we've already identified 50 youth and that's even not everyone has gotten the craft, right? So one of the things that is very clear to me when I look at that data is that this is a need youth are using they all have diagnoses of depression anxiety ADHD trauma we have budding co-occurring disorders that can easily fl- flourish into adulthood and so that's really where it's about prevention and early intervention and so really um, I've been very excited because now that I bug people all the time with those emails, right? Because I'm the one that funnels it. I am the one that gets that email that says the craft score were high, and so I get to bug every single one of the clinicians in the department. Hey, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? Luckily, I have IT stuff that I can type like four things into my keyboard and send an email and it's done with like a nice little paragraph, right? Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of technology that supports me being able to do that pretty easily. And now we're finally getting requests for consultation. And training and now we're finally getting people to engage in this process but it's taken a long time so I hope you all get to be champions after today that's my one passion and one request is that hopefully you guys all kind of see that need for that connection so that's where I'm at I don't think I have anything else do you guys have questions at all about our process our program what
2: we do Sure. So I love looking at like hindsight. Um, Is there anything you would have done differently or wish you would have pushed in a different way to make this happen sooner? Um, Or was it something that culturally you needed to wait? That's a good question.
1: Um, You know, I was a clinician for a majority of that time. I've only been the program manager for a little more than six months. I actually took the role just as all of this was rolling out. And so with it being clinician driven, I think it is so hard to help the process go faster. Um, I think maybe one of the reasons why I got the role, now I don't know why they hired me over some of the other candidates, but maybe it was because I was a huge champion around this and this was one of the goals that they had. And so they knew that I could keep that torch going. but I will be honest that even in our management group, it's really hard to get them engaged. So I think if I had to do anything different, I would be more annoying and bringing it up more and more and keep talking about it more and more. Um, I would bring it up every single month in our manager's meeting. I, I like that question because now I'm like thinking about what I can do to keep it going. Um, and so I think that's a big chunk of it is just not being afraid to be vocal about what you see as a need in a community I think that's probably it. Yeah, maybe pushing it harder as a clinician, being a little bit more annoying about it. But you know, I I feel like I was given a lot of slack, so to say, around those expectations as a clinician um, to be able to still do the pieces of it that I did. Yeah, that was a good question, thank you. Any other questions? No? Okay. Well, thank you guys. Thank you. I really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen.
0: If you enjoy the Emergency Medical Minute, please help us out by rating us on iTunes. For more free medical education, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Make a donation and subscribe to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com.